One thing that I think is seriously lacking still is the accountability of big industry and their role. And especially given that now that climate change and these issues are becoming more and more undeniable, they've shifted their focus away from denying science and towards putting blame on the individual. Whereas it's never been the fault of the individual. The reason why we're in this situation is because of the irresponsibility of certain industry and government as well in enabling a huge amount of environmental degradation and environmental pollution. And then the industry spin it to say, well, you know, it's down to the individual to to solve their own problem. They're, they're putting blame for people who are filling up their cars with gas to drop their kids off at school and, and making people feel responsible for that, whereas they really are not the ones who are responsible. In part two, we dive deeper into the climate crisis and James discusses the shifting focus to sustainable renewable sources and the challenges of electric vehicles and battery technologies. James provides his perspective of working in extreme and remote parts of the planet and the climate impact he's witnessed. He reflects on why industry needs to take responsibility for climate outcomes and to stop placing pressure on individuals. James provides his considered perspective on the climate crisis, the timeline to existential disaster, the current modelling and the uncertainty of how we as humans react to the data we have. We also discuss his research during the upcoming Arctic winter and his experience of working in such extreme environments. We cover how he balances his work with personal life, how serendipity has guided his path, embracing ambiguity and the role of curiosity and creativity in his work. James discusses his principles, the hard choices he's had to make, the one problem worth solving, the question no one asks him, and who's made him reevaluate himself, and his impossible advice. I hope you're uplifted by the balanced perspective and curious scientific mind of Dr. James Bradley. Okay, in terms of what we're experiencing now with COVID-19, I was at an event in New York in January when this was beginning to kick off and when we were becoming aware of it in China and said, look, maybe this is, you know, a Malthusian type of way. Maybe this is Earth and the nature trying to, having an impact on our behavior that there needs to be some correction. If this does start to create a new normal in behaviours and starts to change the way that we look at our communities. It creates an opportunity for us to re-examine our behaviours, both individually as communities and as nations and as a and the whole global, let's say, global supply chain. Do you hold out any hope that there might, this might be a moment where we have the opportunity, even if it's conscious, to, to try and dial back the behaviours that have been contributing to that? Yeah, certainly. I think the fact that we're seeing uh, various industries being classified as essential business or essential workers, and some of the things that we thought that we kind of constructed to be essential do not fall within these categories when the crisis is upon us, that definitely gives us some clarity as to what values we hold important to us and what activities and industries, I suppose, um, are sort of uh, critical versus those that 
we can look at in a new light. So for example, airlines asking for bailouts, there was at least in my kind of circles, a huge backlash towards that because, because of their sort of responsibility for, for various things. In terms of people's behavior, we're, we're recognizing, I guess, that it's not essential to carry out certain businesses or um, travel, for example. It's encouraging that, I suppose, that we can see a slowdown in emissions um, because of this. But when you consider the magnitude of that slowdown compared to what needs to be implemented and how disruptive this has all been, that's kind of somewhat worrying. But yeah, it certainly gives us fresh perspective with which to look at things. I know, I just, um, this is kind of a silly intermezzo, but I found this quote the other day, someone, this, I think he said was a scientist saying like, I kind of feeling the urge to send us all to our room to think about what we've done. That was very cute, but it's very effective. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mentioned drawdown earlier and you talked about the impact of uh, forestation and also the need for reflection of the uh, of ice cap of ice flows or um, what would you call them? glaciers but there's also there are other things as well that uh, we can engineer to offset the the carbon that we create i mean one of the thing i mean there are things that we can do that we can engineer so whether it be creating forests whether it be how i read i heard or heard this great fact in climate week last week in new york uh, last year in new york in september someone said if people didn't cut their grass their lawns in the whole of the u.s for the whole of the the, the, the summer that would have some a significant effect in offsetting all the cars on the road in the u.s so there's obviously data out there are there other examples that you can cite whether it be uh, another one i read about was about the whales uh, i think the humpback whales and their the, the the carbon that they they draw down other examples out there of things you say that we could do as a society to start to offset and to do something about this this essentially a time bomb this that's ticking yeah absolutely um i think that the way in which we use energy is, is super fundamental to that. So analogous to people cutting their lawns, I guess, in LA where I used to live, um, when I, where I did my postdoc, something like 20% of carbon emissions from Los Angeles are from golf courses and people and watering their lawns. Oh, it's not so much really? you know, about, um, about wow them having golf courses and them having, um, but it's about the, the energy that goes into um, maintaining them and watering them and stuff. But aside from, you know, we, we don't want to say fewer golf courses, but we do need to think about using energy more efficiently to reduce the consumption and where that, how that energy is generated to ensure that it is done in a kind of clean, renewable sense. So ways of energy generation such as solar and wind should certainly be prioritized over these technologies that are causing greenhouse gas emissions. One of the things that I think a lot of people maybe struggle to understand is when we talk about advancements in electric vehicles, that electricity still has to come from somewhere. What's your perspective on that? I mean, obviously you've got people like Elon Musk, we've mentioned, and creating his giga factories or the batteries to power all these cars. If Even if we saw the reduction in emissions and uh, we've got to 
all electric vehicles, would there still be an impact from the creation of these electric batteries and these electric cells? Yeah, sure. So there are there are two things at play there, I guess. One is if we switch to electricity, we need to get that electricity from somewhere. And if we're getting that electricity through burning coal to turn turbines, then it's not helping our cause. So there's this, there's a need to ensure that we gain, that we generate our electricity, generate our power, our energy through sustainable sources. And thankfully, we live on an earth which has abundant solar radiation, um, which we can harness for uh, energy to create electricity. That solar radiation also drives currents in the atmosphere that we can use to power wind turbines. We have a tidal system that we can use to generate power through tidal. So we need to ensure that energy is that our energy comes from a clean, renewable source. And then about the issue of investing in technologies to, for example, store that energy, like the batteries that are required in electric cars, that is certainly a major challenge. But with all things, it's about balance. So our use of natural resources can be done in a more sustainable way, or it can be done in a really inefficient, ineffective way. So if we're good about recycling and good about reuse and taking part components that we're done with and repurposing them, for example, the metals that go into these batteries. If we are effective with our use and management of the resources, then we can certainly enable these technologies to to do much more good than the damage that would be caused by not implementing them. You've travelled to some extraordinary and uh, uninviting, and for many people, parts of the parts of the world, the Antar- Arctic, Antarctica. Uh, the Greenland ice sheet. What's your perspective and what have you seen firsthand on the impact that our uh, use of plastic is having on the environment? That our use of plastic, yeah, that's, um, for Greenland especially, that's quite a a saddening experience. So we, with Dan, actually travelled last summer to a gorgeous town in Greenland called Kulusuk and then on to Tassilak. And these are just incredibly beautiful settings with, with remote communities who live just among nature, among the most spectacular nature. And they don't have a good way of dealing with their waste, or an effective way of dealing with their waste because it's never been, been effectively dealt with, really. So you, you have these communities that live just among the most incredible nature and they dump all of their waste into you could call it a landfill, but it's essentially like a little patch of land at the edge of a bluff. And when it kind of overfills, it all falls into the sea. So you have, yeah, there there are things that are going on in these places through no real fault of their own because they don't have the means to effectively dispose of the waste and the materials that they're consuming that, you know, result in huge environmental degradation. That must also impact on things like the polar bear community must be drawn to uh, areas of waste, particularly if there's food waste there. Yeah, I think that that's um, certainly true. A, a different area that I've worked at in the Arctic and Svalbard has seen over the last over the last several decades just massive increases in the frequency of polar bear encounters in towns and the settlements that they live in. And I think 
one aspect of it is that it's due to the polar bears kind of learning that they can forage scraps of food and go through bins when they are otherwise feeling the negative effects of climate change destroying the habitat which they used to hunt on. So there are definitely these ways in which human impacts are coming together with nature and the kind of physical aspects of the planet that is causing some amount of environmental degradation. You're, uh, from what I've read, you do uh, a significant amount of community outreach events and something I've read you did, I think, called Skype a Scientist. Um, do you feel hopeful that communities and action groups are forming that will be sufficient to put pressure on policy, uh, uh, political indifference or inaction or industrial inaction? Yeah, I think certainly it seems like there's a change in momentum and there's at least from what I'm aware of, much more, much more effort towards the next generation, the younger generation, and ensuring that they have an awareness of these major global issues. And it seems like they do, they really care. And that always seems to kind of come natural to this generation of young people. So I'm hopeful in the sense that we are taking certain measures to communicate these issues and that there's certainly a lot more kind of climate activism happening. One thing that I think is seriously lacking still is the accountability of uh, big industry and their role. And especially given that now that climate change and these issues are becoming more and more undeniable, they've shifted their focus away from denying science and towards putting blame on the individual. Whereas it's never been the fault of the individual. The reason why we're in this situation is because of the irresponsibility of certain industry and government as well in enabling a huge amount of environmental degradation and environmental pollution. And then the industry spin it to say, well, you know, it's down to the individual to to solve their own problem. And they're, they're putting blame for people who are filling up their cars with gas to drop their kids off at school and, and making people feel responsible for that, whereas they really are not the ones who are responsible. So, I mean, I, I have it with my own work as well in, in terms of the health of the planet. And an unfortunate consequence of my work is that I travel much more than the average person. So, yeah, I fly on planes to go to the Arctic and make measurements. And I, I go to meetings to discuss our science and to find out where the knowledge gaps are. And climate scientists are sometimes attacked for this. And my feeling on this is, I guess, kind of mixed. I think that it's important to do what we can to minimize our long-term impact on the planet. But I also think that demanding personal perfection is not constructive. So especially labeling climate scientists who share our ambition of a green future as hypocrites. So that certainly is more of a, a problem in how we manage accountability, I think. Yeah, but there is a difference between um, gets getting into areas of what is essential travel. When you start, you can't compare climate scientists traveling to where you go to the Arctic to do essential work to um, build understanding and knowledge between people jumping on flights to fly off between Florida and New York for holiday weekends and for student vacations i mean it's just yeah it's challenging because i, re I recognize that that is 
an issue and a problem in terms of the health of the planet and carbon emissions. But I sympathize and appreciate that these people are just living their lives. So you can't really criticize somebody for just living in the environment that's created around, around them. Um, so the analogy that I have that I read somewhere, um, I think it was on Twitter, but I don't have the source, is that the inventor of the engine rode on a horse for every day of his life. And similarly, the inventor of the light bulb worked by candlelight. So, you know, engineers and scientists who are building the next generation of green technology, they need to drive cars to drop their kids off at school. They have to fly on planes. They have to heat their homes with gas because that's what's available to them. So I think the, the message with that is that participating in the world as it is doesn't disqualify you from trying to improve it. There are, I mean, there are. I mean, there's a lot of talk. We've had a lot of guests on talking about or doing work in the area of sustainability and the environment, you know, from Joshua Spodek, who's a professor here in New York, who talks about leadership in the environment and us taking individual responsibility. So he's on that group of saying it's down to us. It starts with you, the things you do. So he doesn't create waste. He doesn't, he, well, he doesn't create waste, which is incredible. He hasn't flown on a plane since 2015 an act of decision. So he's way ahead individually. Yeah. But the conversation we've had with him is saying, you know, even if you get global collective action on that, there still has to be responsibly, responsibility taken by industry leaders and particularly the investment community. Now, there are people like Larry Fink who said, you know, we're not going to invest in in certain industries and they're, they're funds that are, are a key component in obviously driving sort of change and because of investment. But until there is a wholesale change in direction at a policy level from government and for industry then to change its focus to whether it be solar or wind, you know, presumably that change that needs to, to take place that you're witnessing isn't going to happen. I would absolutely encourage anybody who can take individual action to do so if, if they can sort of within like the circumstances that they find themselves in to, to do all they can to minimize their impact on climate. I'd certainly encourage that. I think that's a, a great idea, but I don't, I certainly don't think that we should be criticizing and uh, trying to place blame on people who otherwise don't have the means to do anything different just for living in the world that exists around them. And the way that these people can have impact, can have a significant impact is by starting a conversation about these issues, by encouraging, by educating themselves in the fundamental underlying science basis and, and political basis, I suppose, as well, and encouraging others to have that, that same, to gain that same understanding. And then to, after that's been widely communicated, to pressure government to implement these changes. So the politicians are, you know, they're, they're puppets for the people. If the people's, if the, if the will of the people changes, the will of the politicians uh, will change too. But sadly, we're in a situation where politicians are also heavily influenced by industry. So there's also that battle to face. But yeah, I, I, I agree that we need to have a higher power like industry and government to mandate these changes but that can be made easier by a stronger will of the people and shared ambition i mean obviously 
people like uh, public figures like Greta and Extinction Rebellion are very vocal. But, I mean, for example, I, I have a, I subscribe to an email from Azim Azar. He's a UK, I'm not actually not sure, he's a consultant, but his email, Exponential View, it comes out every week. Now his, he's putting in the carbon clock and it's showing that, that I don't know how you describe it, the, the carbon countdown. And it gives it in terms of time, saying, you know, if we hit this level, that I think the time on it is something like seven and a half years. And that's the point at which it's every, now maybe this is the scientific community that have said that if we hit that point in carbon emissions, there is a point of no return. We can't offset it. We can't go back. At which point, presumably some form of accelerant or ex, uh, exponential effect takes place. Now, to just the average person reading this, it sounds, that does sound like a doomsday scenario that will create some form of existential threat to the planet. Yeah, so I, I feel like we need to be somewhat careful when communicating these things because these tipping points, they do exist. And we know from uh, circumstances in the past where the climate has changed over million-year timescales due to natural forcings that certain tipping points within the Earth system do cause Earth's climate to go through shifts and distinct shifts. How close we are to these tipping points is a matter that's still debated within the scientific community, but it is still undeniable that that the path in which we are on, assuming business as usual, is sufficient to lead to completely disastrous consequences in terms of environmental degradation, in terms of danger for humanity and you know, uh, natural populations on Earth of animals and fundamental alteration to nutrient cycles and carbon cycles. So regardless of these tipping points, we're on path for something quite that would lead us to a scenario where we don't want to be. So yeah, I mean, they're certainly, they're certainly there, but how fast we're approaching them is, is debated, but in a way it doesn't really matter <laughs> because we need to take action. One of an encouraging result of this, actually, of our uncertainty of the future. So climate scientists run models that will give us some insight into what will happen given a, a, a certain path that we take. And these models have a certain degree of uncertainty associated with them. And that's often jumped onto by climate critics and climate deniers as to saying that, you know, the scientists don't know don't understand the science properly and we don't have a good understanding of the, of the outcome. The reason why these models have a significant, one of the major contributors to this uncertainty, why I should say, I should say what we do know is that given certain emission scenarios, we do have a high confidence in certain outcomes such as temperature rise per given, expected global average temperature rise per given amount of carbon that's emitted. What we don't have a good handle on is what pathway we will take so well, that's one of the major reasons why our climate projections have a huge amount of variability and uncertainty in them is because we don't know if we will be on a pathway where we're emitting a huge amount of carbon, in which case we can expect disaster, or where we actually get onto a pathway where we're uh, in negative emissions, in which case we can very much stabilise this problem. So this uncertain view of the future that's 
shown by numerical simulations of future climate is actually kind of encouraging because it shows that the actions that we take now really do determine the future path that we will find ourselves on. So the actions that we take now are important in determining how humanity deals with this. And once we come out of this this lockdown period, where do you see your work going over the next three to five years and your area of focus? So we have... We have um, a major project that is starting, uh, that was supposed to be starting this spring, actually, and that's been put on hold due to the current lockdown circumstances. And that will be, this project will be going forward in, over the next three, four years. And it's essentially looking at, so ice glaciers and ice sheets in the Arctic are, are retreating as a consequence of climate warming, and that's exposing a huge amount of bare ground and uh, sort of novel ecosystems that are yet to be colonized but do have the potential to significantly impact the cycling of carbon the emission of co2 methane for example from these new ecosystems that are exposed we don't have a good understanding of how seasonal processes affect these vulnerable arctic habitats so typically we go and take our measurements in the Arctic during the summer when it's light and when the temperatures are reasonable. And it's long been assumed that not much happens over the winter because everything kind of freezes up. But it's also a fact uh, that we have difficulty accessing these environments and it's extremely difficult to work in the winter in the Arctic because it's 24-hour darkness. There could be polar bears around that we won't necessarily see. Uh, It's extremely cold. And it's very difficult to make measurements of sort of active processes happening um, when everything is frozen, because typically you need to disturb the sample to make your measurements. So we have a kind of black box picture of what's happening during the winter. And one of the directions that I will go forward with my research in the next few years is trying to understand the winter. So I'd like to be doing much more work in the Arctic in the dark time (laughs) um, and in the shoulder seasons to try to understand what is happening during this period because we've typically been going out during the summer. So we were planning on working in the Arctic this spring to install sensors that would take kind of long-term measurements in the soils and on the ice as to what would be happening over these periods, which are more inaccessible. I have to say, if if I were in your shoes, I would have loved to have got that coral reef PhD project (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds a lot more hospitable than Arctic in wintertime. Yeah, you know, I I love being in the Arctic and the Antarctic. And um, oh, you're glass you're Glaswegian boy at heart. So <laughs> sure, I, these are places that I would have never have had the opportunity to to experience though otherwise. So I've been diving in coral reefs and, and I love it. It's it's incredible to go to places like that and to see the beauty of it all and to experience scuba diving underneath the ocean. But I don't know what path would have led me to to work uh, at, you know, 78 degrees north where it's 24-hour daylight and polar bears around if it wasn't this one. Uh, it must be extraordinary. The Some of the imagery I've seen in some of the reports, um, the photographs of the ice sheets uh, just extraordinary. It must be. Yeah, one of the things um, in the Arctic and in the Antarctic as well, actually, that you completely lose a sense of is scale. So 
when you look across the fjords and you see kind of towering mountains and enormous blocks of ice that are cascading into the ocean and glaciers that are high up in these mountains that have been falling into the ocean because there's no trees vegetation nothing can give you a sense of scale so that enormity is almost lost and uh, yeah it's very strange how do you balance i mean every day you talk about your brother and being happy with the confines of home and you're living this adventurous life how do you sort of uh, what is normal life and how do you balance that with your your work as an associate professor and, and lecturer in the uk and and teaching yeah so i my life since getting this position a year ago has, I guess, changed kind of significantly in that prior to, prior to that, I was driving my own research forward and I could almost schedule my own time. So I, I wrote um, a fellowship proposal that gave me funds to do science in the US and, um, and I was responsible for driving that science forward, but kind of on my own time and with my own direction and scope. And so since starting this new position as a, as a permanent member of faculty staff at a university, I also have a huge number of other responsibilities that include teaching undergraduate students and graduate students, supervising research, carrying out various administrative roles, but also needing to drive forward my own scientific research program. So yeah, this, this last year since getting that position has been a crazy whirlwind of trying to figure out a new balance. But prior to that, I love the freedom that being a scientist gives me uh, in, in, in more than one sense in that I'm responsible for driving my own work forward and, and how I do that. But I also am responsible for the type of science that I do. So if my interests had changed, then I, 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 I'm free to sort of refocus that. I could, if, if for whatever reason I got super interested in volcanoes, there's no reason why I can't train myself to study them that doesn't really get to the, <laughs> to the question of what does my day-to-day -day look like I guess I haven't had much of a, a stable day-to-day -day in the past year because it's been traveling field work it's been teaching classes at the university it's been traveling to other institutions for collaborations and to give talks while also trying to maintain somewhat of a personal life and social balance as well okay well Let's um, just jump into our quickfire questions. But before we do, you mentioned serendipity. Where and how has serendipity impacted on your direction? So I think serendipity has been a part of my, my work, I guess, through um, the connections and network that I've been in. And that has led me to be involved in some kind of truly amazing projects. My second PhD supervisor, my primary PhD supervisor, Arctic microbiologist. Um, my secondary supervisor was a kind of, uh, during my PhD, interested in carbon cycling through the deep earth. And so very different disciplines, but through her, she introduced me to kind of a seemingly quite obscure topic or habitat, which was understanding the nature of deep ocean sediments and the cycling of carbon and the life that occurs within them. Through that interest that she kind of inspired me to develop my own interest in, I took a course in the US that was on a similar theme of that. And that had a massive impression on me. I met a bunch of people 
And I ended up writing a, a fellowship proposal to work with one of the scientists that I met on that course. Ended up getting that, awarded that fellowship. So moved to Los Angeles, which was, you know, a completely different thing and had a, had a major impression on my life. And that subject area is now kind of a major focus of my research. So not so just through, you know, an obscure research interest of one of my PhD supervisors led me to develop not only a whole new branch of my research, but also to move halfway across the world and experience something completely different. How do you embrace uncertainty and ambiguity? Is it something you're comfortable with? Yeah, I've always thrown myself into somewhat uncomfortable circumstances. So an example would be, you know, moving all the way across the world away from family and friends and loved ones into an environment where I know nobody. And it doesn't have to be so far. So moving from the UK to Amsterdam, I knew nobody when I moved there. And there was a tremendous amount of kind of uncertainty there, but it was it was massively enriching as well. So I sort of value that as a enriching part of my life, I think. We interviewed a, a wonderful guest called uh, Dr. Merritt Moore, who's a quantum optics uh, doctor, professor. And uh, she's a ballet dancer, world-class ballet dancer as well, and trained astronaut, all at the age of 30. <laughs> it's incredible. But she talked about the, how creativity and science are completely, there's a partnership between creativity and curiosity and science. And a lot of people don't see science and creativity as, as, as bedfellows. But presumably, curiosity is a core component of you um, discovering new knowledge, uh, new developing new ideas, and your creativity is how you approach it. I'm just making that assumption. But a lot of people in creative fields struggle with procrastination. And I just wonder if it's something that you deal with. Yeah, so I, I definitely think that there is a huge amount of creativity in how scientists, how they work, how they approach a problem, how they present their data to be the most effective. You need to be super creative when you're trying to um, display or discuss kind of complex ideas in a way that gets the message across. There's a reason why the science that we are doing and the experiments we're doing don't yet have answers is that probably people have tried and haven't been able to figure it out yet. So we need to come up with creative approaches to do that all the time. In terms of, in terms of procrastination, so yeah, I definitely have suffered from procrastination, but not so much in this past year, because in this past year, I've had no time for pretty much anything. I've been hugely overburdened with, with everything that I've, that I've thrown myself into. So I found that through having, through, I, I've definitely valued the time that I have had more and been a huge amount more focused during the time that I've been working, but almost through necessity. And hopefully that will, going forward, when I figure out how to manage all of this and, and my demands and time better, I, I feel like I will be able to procrastinate less in, in giving the time that I allocate towards a certain task the full amount of dedication and focus that it needs. Particularly if you're on the Arctic ice shelf. <laughs> Yeah, so there's there's less sort of procrastination, I guess, when the demands are high. So when you go out to, to a remote field environment, you only have a certain amount of time to get stuff done or the stakes are really high and you've got to get it done right. 
a huge amount goes wrong regardless and some of it is within your control and some of it's not but our field teams show an enormous amount of dedication and, and commitment and focus in their work and we also have tons of fun out there as well so. okay what principles do you stand by what principles do i stand by i i value i value like loyalty a huge amount i value kind of the fair treatment of people so i think that phrase do unto others as you would like them to do unto you i sort of live by that as well as that i sort of learned through experience that your impressions of people will often be wrong so i've learned to never make any assumptions uh, or judgments about anybody or their personal circumstances or experience because it will very often be proved wrong and I'll, I'll have been completely ignorant about an aspect of somebody so I think fair treatment and kind of not thinking that you know someone so much or their circumstances and making various assumptions okay good answers what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision I think decisions to live abroad certainly there's a lot to weigh up the costs and consequences and opportunities of doing that. And I've moved abroad and to, to a number of different places uh, at different stages of my life. So it's never been easy because there's a, there's a very significant kind of sacrifice that you make in terms of being far apart from your loved ones and, and your friends and family, and also kind of moving to a new place where you don't know anybody and you kind of start with nothing. But it also these uh, opportunities, I'd know, I would never go back on them because having the opportunity to live in new places and experience completely different things and and travel and see and, and you know gain all of these experiences have, have shaped who I am fundamentally I think. Okay where do you go to discover new ideas? On a general sense I think I get a lot of my inspiration from talking with communicating with people um, talking to people um, and traveling, I guess, as well. So that exposes me to a lot of different people and a lot of different experiences and different ideas. Um, I like um, reading um, media and listening to kind of stimulating podcasts and stuff and, and hearing people talk about things that I'm not so familiar with. Um, that gives me a lot of ideas. And I guess... A lot of like things come to me when I when I go running, so <laughs> that sometimes gives me clarity and focus and perspectives on things that I would otherwise be not see being kind of wrapped up. Mm -hmm. This is a question we always ask people, but I think I probably know the answer for you. What's the one problem worth worth solving? Yeah, the obvious one the <laughs> parallel to what we've been talking <laughs> about is is of climate change. I would say though probably some one problem that I wish could be solved is humans being able to sort of understand and empathize with each other. And I think that's a challenge that is faced sort of is very significant to a lot of people's lives. Particularly today. Um, if you could return to one night, one day in history, where, when, and to see who? <laughs> I don't think I have a particular moment that I would, uh, or a, time in history that I would there's a lot of times in history that I think would be interesting to go to but if I could return to certain days or nights in certain, certain circumstances I think 
it would just be an unfortunate consequence of me having lived abroad is that I'm I miss sort of important events or moments for other people so countless birthdays of families and you know graduations and those important moments for people that I've been close to that I haven't been a part of I would probably return to one or more of them okay what's a question that no one asks you that you wish they would I wish people would ask me more to to like just do stuff like hey do you want to go hiking or camping or <laughs> travel to this place because <laughs> I always find like I'm asking people and trying to get people to do stuff with me or yeah so to be yeah. asked that more would be pretty sweet your brother take note <laughs> <laughs> who's made you reevaluate yourself who's made me reevaluate myself i can't think of a specific person but i think that i'm always humbled by um the people who i interact with in the kind of science and academic realm there and you know my my peers in that environment and also my friends so i i have taken a ton of inspiration from the achievements of others and um understanding the circumstances of people better so in understanding them i've reevaluated myself but i can't think of specific an individual okay that's fine you live on the boundaries of exploration of new information insights science knowledge how do you keep up with technology <laughs> i don't know that i do i certainly don't have any of the apps that <laughs> that everyone is getting on their phones and i am kind of late coming to certain technologies but i don't know i feel like i'll i'll embrace technology when i need it <laughs> but i don't think i'm on top of it at all okay what would your advice be to someone who's just about to graduate and uh, that's going to study might have a dream a goal an ambition uh, but it's being told forget it that's impossible it's been told that it's impossible i think to that it's important that they pursue that anyway and sort of i guess to recognize that if they've been told something is impossible that it's probably due to some underlying bias or stigma or preconception or dogmatism that that person has and that that is potentially not so true that it's impossible or that that person isn't you know dreaming big enough or if it or if something is truly impossible then it's probably important that the person who wants to do it figures that out by themselves um and so at at least attempts to go out and do it okay thank you last three questions or four what's your go to karaoke song <laughs> guitar in hand or no guitar in hand i wish i could sing i'm a terrible singer um so i'd never be doing karaoke but if i did <laughs> i guess it'd be something by one direction Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh with time on your hands and not being out exploring the the more inhospitable parts of the planet. Uh what has been a recent Netflix, Amazon, Apple or some interesting documentary or series that you think people should watch? There's a comedy series uh BBC. It's not that recent anymore, but it's massively underrated British series called People Just Do Nothing, which oh, is don't a- know that hilarious it's almost got so it's it's a kind of mockumentary that follows a mc rap group in london but it's almost got that feel of like the office about it where the the main character is so sort of uh the center of the attention and and uh yeah it's it's hugely underrated but 
really, really fantastic show. It's on the list. Uh, what book would you like us to offer the guests to come up with the best comments in our comment section on the website or on Instagram? I have enjoyed reading Urban Welsh's books a lot. Um, so very different, very different to anything else that I've read, especially there's a book of it. So he wrote Trainspotting, mm-hmm. which is now a major movie and a few of the sequels and prequels to that. But there's one book called Marabou Stork Nightmares that he wrote and it follows the story of somebody in hospital who I think in a coma and kind of flicking in between their strange world that they're living in in their coma with their past life with their present life of their family kind of caring for them in hospital and it's just it's a book that blew my mind in in terms of the way that it's written and to to write a book like that and also the story is just crazy but it's pretty it's pretty dark and it's got some it deals with some issues that are sort of challenging but it's it's a really cool book good one okay we'll put that on the list and final question who should we interview next I think it would be super interesting to interview a, uh, a guy called Nick Cox, who is, he's British, he lives in the UK, in, in the Lake District. But he has worked for the British Antarctic Survey for several decades. Um, he's the current station manager of the UK Arctic Research Station, which is a station, a scientific station in the furthest, most northerly settlements in the world. And he's been managing that station for probably a couple of decades. But in, in the years leading up to that, he worked in Antarctica. He's worked on ships all across the world. And his stories are fantastic. So I think he would be a, a great person to get even more insight into the nature of living and working and supporting science and, and people in extreme polar regions great well we'll be following up with you for uh, a little intro there so well we just uh, just wrap up by thanking you for your time and your great answers and i think what is refreshing because i think when you people say to people you're going to be interviewing a scientist you glaze over a little bit and think oh we're going to be bamboozled with data and information that's on an, uh, you just uh, you're, that lose people. But I think what I acknowledge you for is a, an elegant articulation and simplification for us uh, average people of the work you do and the, and the great scientific advancements that you're making. I think also it must take a, a great degree of courage to push yourselves into areas where other people haven't gone. And also um, with that, in the true nature of what you started out saying you had as a child, which is a spirit of advent- an adventure. And also probably the sacrifices that have to go along with it. So um, thank you very much for your time and keep up that great work. Yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks very much for having me. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.